Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Kristen Swinson about a most peculiar book. First, wanted to let you know that you can go to booksonpod.com to check out all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for the latest news on this show, check us out on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BooksOnPod. Hey, this is Greg Graffin from Bad Religion. I'd like you to listen to Books on Pod with Trey. We just had a great talk about Do What You Want, the story of bad religion. Hello, readers. Kristen Swenson is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of several books on Christianity. Her latest is A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible. Kristen, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Trey. It's my pleasure, and this was a fascinating book. We're certainly going to get into a number of details, but it's interesting breaking the Bible down like you did because— it's not always necessarily this straightforward thing. And as a matter of fact, you write that when dealing with the Bible, there are three histories to take into consideration. The history in the Bible, the history of the Bible, and the history behind the Bible. What do you mean by all of this? Yeah, I think that when it comes to the Bible, it's actually really important that we recognize these different histories because the Bible is so different than any of the other books that happen to be sitting on our shelves. There is a history behind the Bible, that is the historical context out of which the biblical texts come. So we know that the Bible evolved over a long period of time. It didn't emerge wholesale exactly like we have it dropped out of the sky in King James English, for instance, but it grew up over possibly centuries. And as a result, the things that we find in it reflect, well, different experiences at different points in time. The history of the Bible is that question of how we got the Bible that we have. So that is asking after the process of the Bible's evolution from its origins in the mists of ancient history some of which we think may have been oral, to the collections as they began to take shape until the final form that we have. And of course, a history of the Bible would recognize that we're not always talking about the same thing when we talk about the Bible, because there are different Bibles. Different people have different collections composing those Bibles. The most obvious is a Jewish Bible is composed of the books that compose the Christian Old Testament and don't include the books that include a Christian New Testament. But I'm already getting a a little afield of our question around the histories, which is such a good one, because the third history that we talk about when we talk about the Bible is a history in the Bible. That is, the Bible tells its own stories of what had happened those stories include God. So we know right out of the gate that they are not disinterested reporting of, say, eyewitness accounts or facts such as we would expect from modern journalism or in a public school history textbook. It's instead a history that's informed by people's beliefs. So the history in the Bible isn't always exactly the same as a history behind the Bible. An example of that is the famous battle 
of Joshua and the Israelites at Jericho. We've got that wonderful song of the walls came a tumbling down when those horns sounded. And it's a very dramatic story we read in the biblical book of Joshua. But archaeologists have revealed to us that the ancient city of Jericho was already in ruins by the time that we situate Joshua and those proto-Israelites coming through. So then we have to accept that that biblical story is doing something different than trying to tell us a precise history such as we would find in a textbook or from a journalist. We're getting instead a history in the Bible informed by faith. So then we have to ask different kinds of questions then. Is this exactly what happened? Or assume that what we read of the history as the Bible narrates it is exactly what happened. So is the embellishment of events just trying to fit into that author's narrative then to try and help perpetuate whatever the belief system is that they are expressing in a particular book or story? I think that's a really good question. I think with that question, we're on the track to getting an answer or idea that corresponds to what the Bible is interested in communicating. Hmm. Sometimes we bring to the Bible expectations for it that it just won't deliver on. So then we get sidetracked by our expectations for which the Bible doesn't conform. So I think, yes, a question, is that story then trying to tell us something different, is a good one. Yeah. And it's definitely coming out of a perspective of faith. And then we can ask, what the story is about on its own terms. So translation is a fascinating subject with the Bible. As you talked about, the languages that the Bible was originally written in, both Old and New Testament, are no longer a normal part of our world today, and oftentimes they were retranslated or retold over time before they were ever put down on paper. And you see examples of this with the creation story. Of course, the world was not created in seven days, But why is Adam not necessarily the name of the world's first human? (laughs) Yeah, so biblical Hebrew is the original language, if you will, of that story. It comes to us through biblical Hebrew. And in biblical Hebrew, there is no distinction between upper and lowercase letters that help us when we're reading in English, for instance, distinguish a proper noun from a common noun, a name from an item. So when we come across that story in Genesis chapter 2, where we read about the creation of a human being, and I should actually backtrack us to Genesis chapter 1, where we also read of the creation of Adam, where in Genesis chapter 1, it's often translated as human being, which is more in keeping with the tenor of those stories to translate Adam as a human being, because It isn't gender specific, but we get the proper name Adam, of course, from that word in the Hebrew. But Adam, the human being, is created in Genesis chapter 2 in a wonderful twist of wordplay. Adam is created out of Adamah. And that ending on Adama is actually a feminine noun ending, which is somewhat, well, there are fewer feminine nouns in Hebrew than masculine nouns, though they don't necessarily indicate 
the sex of the object. At any rate, Adam is created out of Adama. Adam is created out of the ground. Adama is a noun meaning ground or soil or earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, then we have a story of God's fashioning and the verb used is one we associate with the making of a thing, the actual forming of an object. God fashions Adam out of Adama. It's a very intimate moment and it's a really beautiful reflection of how closely that narrator associated human beings with the ground, the soil, out of which the human being was shaped, formed according to that particular story. And it's only after God recognizes that Adam needs a companion and that none of the animals that God first trots out in front of Adam will satisfy the need of Adam for a partner like unto Adam. It's only after the surgical procedure that creates another out of the side of Adam that we have the distinction of the sexes, ish and isha, a man and woman. So Adam in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, and this is true in Genesis chapter 1 too, is not sex specific. In Genesis chapter 1, Adam is created, you may remember in that story, it's usually translated male and female in the image of God. God created them. So there is a simultaneous creation of the male and female versions of Adam in Genesis chapter 1. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we have a either bisexual or sort of sexless human being until we get man and woman. Another word that is not necessarily as straightforward as many of us have believed over time is the word Satan. How is Satan or Satan not always synonymous with the devil in the Bible? Yeah, so you're right to note that the pronunciation of the origins of our Satan with a capital S is from the Hebrew Satan. We usually represent that. It's a transliteration. That is, that's the way it sounds if you sound out the Hebrew So we usually write it with a lowercase s, S S-A-T-A-N, in italics indicating that it's a foreign word. Satan in the Hebrew Bible takes a few different shapes, actually. And those reflect some of the evolution of that idea over time in the centuries over which the Bible developed. The Satan in some of the earliest texts where Satan is mentioned, is more an adversary or a, I've heard it described as a kind of like a prosecuting attorney. Hmm. Than is definitely not the personification of evil over and against God, not in some of the biblical texts where Satan appears. Instead, God actually is a Satan in a story in Numbers, It's a curious story. This is a story of a prophet and his donkey, wherein the donkey starts talking. So there are a lot of weird (laughs) things about the story, some of which we miss when we read it in translation. And one of those that we miss is that God actually is or sends a Satan as a being who will confront the prophet, after which the donkey 
reveals <laughs> truths that the prophet accepts as is perfectly normal. It's all very bizarre. And I really think some of these biblical writers had a really good sense of humor. And we, we <laughs> miss that when we approach the Bible with such devastating sobriety. But anyway, the Satan becomes more and more an entity unto itself the later we go in biblical history, until by the time of the New Testament, that is in the first centuries of the Common Era, we have the personification of evil. This is the Satan that tempts Jesus, for instance, in the wilderness. But that was a long time coming. So the Bible... It gets a little bit ridiculous in parts. The best example may very well be when the Bible goes Shrek with the talking donkey, but to your point, perhaps (laughs) there was a little bit stuffiness with the translation. Is the attempt to try and make everything sound as realistic as possible an issue throughout the translation of both the Old and New Testaments? Translation is a tricky process, but it's necessary And it's necessary that it keep happening, that we keep getting new translations, because our language keeps changing. And so even, well, like the King James Bibles are in some places difficult for modern readers to make sense of, even though they're in English, right? But yeah, translation is an act of interpretation. There is no way to make a perfect one-to-one correspondence from one language to another. And anyone who's studied a foreign language, I think, has to reckon with this at some point, where they recognize that a turn of phrase, we may translate woodenly, word for word, but then we lose its sense. And oh, there's some hilarious examples of this you could Google these literal translations from other languages that are absolutely preposterous. So we get into trouble when we try to do that. When it comes to the Bible, of course, the stakes are high for folks. And I recommend that people who really want to get a good sense of how the original languages, if you will, the biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek and some Aramaic, what the possibilities for translation might be, I recommend that people get a number of different translations and lay them out beside one another and see where they differ. See how one translation may be different from another. And that's a good place to start for modern readers who don't know those languages, who haven't had an opportunity to learn biblical Hebrew or Koine Greek and the kind of depth necessary to translate from the Bible, to look at those different translations side by side can give you a good sense of where the originals allow for some differing in their translations. That's a great piece of advice there. And regarding the literal nature that people treat the Bible, I think that there are certain stories that you have to understand versus suspending disbelief that maybe there's another lesson there. I mean, Jonah was swallowed by a whale, which, as you point out in this book, wasn't even a whale in the original translation. It was a giant (laughs) fish. But I think even the staunchest of Christians would have a hard time truly believing that a guy gets swallowed by a giant fish, spends three days in its belly before getting puked back up once again, and is still living to tell that story. So what is your figurative interpretation of that one? Yeah. So I know we get into such trouble when we 
and I use this language of using the Bible literally, taking it literally. But again, you know, what's ironic is that most people who are claim to be taking the Bible literally are doing it with a translation. And I just talked about how problematic translations can be <laughs> because they cannot capture the whole. But yeah, it's very clear in a number of stories that we must not read them with the kind of modern expectation we bring to a certain piece of text. And Jonah is a great example of there's got to be something else going on in the story than an effort to relate how a guy got swallowed by a fish and survived for three days and was miraculously able to go about his business afterward. <laughs> it doesn't seem at all interested in what happens to the regurgitative process of a fish <laughs> on a human being. And there's just, that's not at all a part of what the story seems interested in talking about. So Jonah, yeah, is a story of a prophet who is commissioned by God, like we read a number of other prophets are, asked by God to do a certain thing, to prophesy to a group of people that those people would change from their wicked ways and turn to God. So it's like a number of the other books of the prophets in those ways, but it departs rather quickly and again is, is very comedic. Jonah is commanded to go to Nineveh to prophesy against those people that they would repent and be saved, that they would turn to God. The Ninevites were a people enemy to the original audience of the story. So the people who would have heard this story would have had hostile feelings about the Ninevites. Nineveh was a capital of Assyria, which was a great big powerhouse of a nation in the ancient Near East, and they actually defeated Israel. And they're the reason for the 10 lost tribes, so to speak. It was the Assyrian Empire that conquered that coalition of 10 tribes of the northern nation of Israel in 722 BC, so in the 8th century BC. So the Ninevites were hated by the people who would have heard this story. Jonah is commanded to go there, but and he unlike other prophets, chooses simply not to do that. <laughs> so he hops on a ship to go the opposite direction of Nineveh than he was supposed to, according to the biblical story. And um, one of the things that's so intriguing about this story is how foreigners are represented. Mm. The shipmates of Jonah are all foreign people. They are not God-worshipping, according to the biblical God, if you will. But they are portrayed as compassionate, as right-minded, right and they even appeal to Jonah's God because they don't want to have to throw him overboard, which is what Jonah says has to happen in order for the, the storm that has come up to go away. So anyway, they do do this. And of course, Jonah is swallowed by the whale, according to the story, which is an hilarity unto itself. And then he sings a song in the belly of the whale. And there he is for three days singing, singing to God um, and singing away. And then after three days is spat up on the shore to proceed to Nineveh. And of course, the narrator tells that this is, of course, all God's doing, that Jonah carry out this command that God has commissioned him, this job he's commissioned him to do. So Jonah does, he walks into Nineveh just a little ways, and then he says the one oracle of judgment that appears within the entire book. 
so unlike the other prophets, which are filled, I mean, it's page after page after page after page. They go through all sorts of different ways, efforts, means to try to convince people to change from their evil ways. They pull out all the stops and metaphors and they undertake sign acts where like they wear a yoke showing how horrible things will be. If Anyway, Jonah does none of these things. He just says one sentence of judgment to Nineveh that if they won't turn from their evil ways, they'll be destroyed. You can almost hear him muttering it under his breath. <laughs> and then, miracle of miracles, all the Ninevites reform. They repent according to the story, every single one of them. And according to the story, they repent down to the very last animal, domesticated animal among them. That is, the domesticated animals, the cattle is usually how it's translated, even they wear sackcloth, so repentant of they are they of their wicked ways. And so God chooses not to punish them, which makes Jonah really mad. He's so mad he wishes to die. So this is a whole nother level of hilarity in the book. But it's also a very gentle reminder. It regularly returns gently to this corrective of xenophobia, that the foreigner is someone to be hated, feared and hated. But instead, the foreigners come off looking really good in the story. Jonah does not come out looking so good, our prophet of God. But yeah, it's full of interesting twists and turns that I think we can't appreciate if all we want to get out of it is some kind of report of how a guy got swallowed by a fish and miracle of miracles, God saved him. That doesn't seem to be what the story is trying so hard to relate. Now, what exactly it is trying to relate, that's when the fun happens. Then we can get in and ask questions. And I think we'll find a lot of different ways of thinking about it that can be enriching for ourselves. I feel like that's a version of a story, or that's maybe a story from the Bible that is used, and I apologize for the pun here, that is used to try and hook kids who are just getting oh, into yes. Christianity and the Bible, just because it does have this cartoonish element to it, right? And you don't necessarily have to get deeper in some of those youth classes, whereas perhaps that's something that congregations full of adults can explore a little bit deeper, but I don't necessarily know if that really happens all that frequently either. Yeah, I think we get hung up. We're going to keep using our hook image. <laughs> we, we get hung up on just this, I'll use it again, the word miraculous nature of yeah. a guy who gets swallowed by a fish and survives. And then that's, we just leave it at that. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's often taught to kids as an illustration of how great God is and how God can make impossible things happen. <laughs> well, you know, that may be so, but there's a whole lot more there. I have to thank you for encouraging me and all your readers of this book to go back and reread about David and Goliath. I had forgotten just how detailed that story gets and just where David comes from, how he just kind of stumbles into this opportunity to defeat this giant, and how he truly goes about defeating the giant after he hits him in the head with a stone from his slingshot. What does evidence suggest about the legitimacy of this story? Well, it's a great story. It's a great story of the underdog defeating the great, big, powerful, scary boogie monster, impossible to be defeated, but 
wow, look here, it happened thanks to this little boy. It's such a good story. We don't know exactly what happened. We do know, based on the Bible, that another guy also gets credit for killing Goliath. (laughs) It's just not as racy a story. It appears in another text within the Hebrew Bible that a different warrior had defeated Goliath. So we see, again, evidence of the Bible's coming to us over a period of time and representing a number of different traditions that got combined into what we have now. It's not to detract from that story of David, the shepherd boy, able to defeat the national terror of Goliath with a single stone to the head, as you said. (laughs) It's not to diminish that story, but again, to recognize that the history behind that story may be different than the history in that story. And that wouldn't Um, be the first example in human history of somebody who becomes king having stories prior to him taking the crown being slightly embellished either. (laughs) Very understated. And yes, so true. (laughs) And I know folks will say, of all histories, there is some subjectivity that weaves through. (laughs) We're getting schooled in that now. And I think it's a good schooling for us to sit back down in our desks and learn again some of the histories that we haven't been necessarily exposed to in America anyway. Very well said. Why is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot's wife, turning into a pillar of salt after she looks back at the city such a confusing one to you? Well, that's one of those stories that we're not entirely sure what to make of. (laughs) And there are a number of these within the Bible where we know that there was a tradition behind this, that there is a history of this text that we don't have entirely. And it may help us to better understand the history behind that text. The best explanation I've heard folks give for that confounding story of a woman who is fleeing this city's in ruin, who turns around and turns into a pillar of salt, is that the general vicinity out of which, so here's a history behind, the general vicinity in which or out of which we think this story came is one possibly around what is the Dead Sea in Israel today. That Dead Sea is so named because nothing really lives in it. I think there may be like... Someone may have, anyway, this is not an environment in which fish and other mammals can live, the kind of things we're accustomed to seeing in an ocean or the sea, because the saline content is so sky high. Around the Dead Sea are these really, they seem almost extraterrestrial geological formations Mm. that are a product of that unusual saline environment. And so this story maybe has behind it some, it may be one of those etymology stories of, you know, what were they, Kipling's Just So stories, how the tiger got its stripes, you know, (laughs) how did the Dead Sea get its pillars? (laughs) I don't know, a bunch of wicked women. Those women just won't do what they're told, damn it. (laughs) So they turn into pillars of salt. (laughs) Anyway, it may be that some of that lies behind the story. (laughs) 
anyway, I won't get into the misogyny, but... Well, not only the misogyny, but I think that's a story that a lot of the most traditional of Christians that still frown the hardest on homosexuality. That's the story that they tend to latch on to. But does the Bible say anything explicitly about homosexuality? Arguably, no. Not within the Hebrew Bible. There are some texts that Paul, not Jesus, but Paul gives us from the New Testament that appear to be critical of homosexual activity. But again, context is so important when we start looking at these texts for how to judge behavior today. The Bible is is deafeningly silent on, on criticisms of homosexuality by comparison with the kind of frantic enthusiasm to judge gay people among Bible believers today, unfortunately, it seems. At any rate, the story that we refer to as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah refers to a violence against the people of that town that is a rape. It would be a vicious rape, which has no relationship to whether or not people who love each other and happen to be of the same sex should be able to express that love. The Bible has nothing to say about that kind of a homosexual relationship. A loving partnership of same-sex people is not something the Bible seems particularly interested in in speaking to one way or another. It does, however, have a lot to say about a lot of the kinds of things that we dismiss with a quick wave of the hand. Adultery is one. Holy smokes, that comes in for a whole lot of fire. (laughs) And then there are other things that we, a lot of us, don't even really want to recognize our points of criticism in the Bible. Wearing a garment woven of a couple of different kinds of cloth (laughs) is forbidden. Well, you know, we've got our poly cotton blends all over the place. And So we don't seem to care so much about that. And of course, few of us keep kosher, right? (laughs) And boy, dietary laws, there are a lot of dietary laws, what you should eat and not eat. Now, of course, Christians will say, well, some of that was done away with when Jesus came along and Paul and company figured out how it was fine for Christians to eat whatever they want to eat. But restrictions on some of the kinds of activities that we take for granted today are very real in the Bible, but we don't seem to care so much about those. But we're very, we get very excited about judging other people and condemning their behavior. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, the Old Testament also gives a big thumbs up to slavery. Does the Bible ever walk that one back later in the Old Testament or perhaps in the New Testament? In the New Testament, the whole book of Philemon is about telling a slave to go back and be a slave again. Mm. So this is very disturbing to us, and it's rightly disturbing. So one of the things that, I'm glad you asked that, because one of the things that I want to embolden people to do is to engage with the Bible as a conversation partner with it, rather than just taking it as a kind of one-way dictatorial trajectory, especially when 
you're maybe reading a translation or or getting a filtered through the interpretation of a pastor who says, you know, gay people should be stoned to death or something like that. The Bible demands that we engage with it. It argues with itself. It doesn't always agree with itself. And that alone tells me it is telling us don't take this at a kind of dictatorial face value, if what that face value leads you to do is damaging or destructive to others or the planet, if that's the way you're reading the Bible, then I think the Bible says, take a step back and argue with me. I think the Bible is asking us to argue with it sometimes, especially when we encounter texts that would seem to support behavior, actions, attitudes that we know are damaging. They're harmful to others. They're harmful to the world around us. I think the Bible is begging us to push back. And I think a personal example for you is the book of Judges. Why is the end of the book of Judges so off-putting for you? Oh, yeah. it um, Judges ends on a terribly violent note. It's an interesting book. If we look, I'm going to skip over to our literary critical world for a second, because that's a book that if you look at it as a piece of literature in its entirety, you see that it is a series of cycles. It tells a series of cycles. And the cycles have to do with the people in the book of Judges. The context is that people have entered the land of Canaan. They've taken it. It's now Israel. It's theirs. But it's not yet a nation. The people are governed in a loose confederacy of tribes by leaders that we call judges. And they operated like judges, but they were also like military leader, also arbiters, but very much military leaders. At any rate, it tells these cycles. There are story cycles wherein the people are good with God and then because of the people in the land, they're tempted to worship other gods and God. They worship other gods and goddesses, and then God punishes them, and then they get straight again. And this is the cycle goes around and around. And it's told in different contexts and different ways. But it isn't just a series of repeating perfect cycles, circles. It kind of spirals out of control or it spirals downward. And that spiral you can actually see in parallel with the fates of women. At the very beginning, you actually have a judge who is a woman. At the very beginning, you have a woman who argues for herself. She claims property for herself. She is listened to and she is respected. You have a judge, Deborah, the leader of the whole band of Confederate tribes, is a woman. This is an early in the book, but by the end of the book, the last woman we read about as an individual is a woman who is essentially the property, though, of her husband, who gives her over in a very similar situation as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where men from the city demand access to the people inside the house. And in this case, it's this woman who is basically thrown to them. They gang rape her all night long. And we don't even know if she's alive or dead when um, in the morning her husband slash owner trips over her. And then 
There is some outcry at the violence done, but it's not really in defense of her. Her body is cut up. The piece is commensurate with the number of tribes to get each of them to rally around for yet more violence. At the very end, a bunch of girls are taken from their homes to serve as wives because there weren't enough to go around. It's a horrible ending. That book, again, operates, though, very clearly with a literary structure. And the echoing verse at the end is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did as they pleased, or every man did as he pleased, which is a kind of warning. So that sets you up as a book in the trajectory of this collection that we call the scholars call the Deuteronomistic History, which is a collection of books that take their marching orders from the book of Deuteronomy. Those books are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and they purport to tell a history of the people after they had entered the land. The book then right after Judges in this narrative is Samuel, and in Samuel we begin to get the foundation for the beginning of a monarchy. So Judges then sets us up for the next stage in the development of the people in relation to God, and that is that they will have a monarchy. But yeah, the conclusion of Judges is terribly disturbing, and it should be disturbing to us, I think. If I can ascribe an intent to all those folks or God involved in the final product, it would be hard for me to imagine it's not horror that we come away from that feeling horrified. Yeah, and again, the trajectory of the whole book is that when things were good for the people, (laughs) that things were good with women when things were good for the people, and then at the end, you have this horrific violence against women, and the whole nation is in chaos. Now, I'm not arguing that the Bible is woman-friendly, because boy, a lot of it is not. In its wholesale form, it is not. But again, it reflects patriarchal influences and patriarchal cultures. So we can't expect it to be woke, as we say today. But that doesn't make misogyny right either, or the assumption of slavery, which I think is how we got on all this. Sorry, Trey. Whew a quarter in me. No, it's uh, that's the reason why I asked. You uh, stated some strong feelings about judges, so I wanted to hear you express those vocally, and sure enough, you did. Uh, although you mention it in A Most Peculiar Book, you don't go into great detail on the 30-year gap in the Bible between when Jesus was born and then when he resurfaces. Now, considering how well-versed you are on every other aspect of this book, I'm curious to know what you believe happened over the course of that 30 years. <laughs> Again, I am always inclined to come back to the Bible and ask, we're working with this text, what is it doing with us? Or what does it want us to be doing in relation to it? And one of the things it clearly isn't particularly interested in is Jesus' childhood and teenage years. They just are not there. And no wishing they were is going to make them happen. (laughs) And so the Bible is interested in doing something different with this Jesus of Nazareth than of telling a cradle to the grave, as they say, biography. And again, 
if we just take the Bible as it comes to us, we would recognize that must be true because there are four different biographies of Jesus right at the upfront beginning. We have these four Gospels, and they're called Gospels in the Bible. That word in Greek means good news, so it's already a judgment call. That is, the Bible is already saying, we're going to tell you these stories because we believe they have this import for you. They're good news, (laughs) rather than we are going to tell you exactly what happened with this human being who was God, who was born in X year, which was now we pretty sure not zero. Anyway, the Bible doesn't seem particularly interested. Well, it's clearly not at all interested in telling us about Jesus' childhood. We don't have it. Other gospels that floated around in the ancient world did. There's actually an infancy gospel that floated around for a time, but they didn't make the cut. They didn't come to us as Bible. So they're interesting and fun reading, and we do have some stories that circulated in the early years about Jesus as a child, but those were also informed by positions of faith. So we don't have any pure footage <laughs> from those years. You know, it's it's interesting, and I do wonder if Jesus as a teenager was uh, taking the proverbial baseball bat to the mailboxes in ancient times, because that's the time <laughs> when you're, you're most wild and you have the hardest time distinguishing right from wrong, correct? Yeah, there's certainly lots of wonderful opportunity the Bible gives us for writing fiction, filling in the gaps, imagining, imagining that what happened in the in-betweens. For a book that is full of symbolism, Revelation may have more than the rest, maybe more than the rest combined. And you say that this book came from particularly challenging circumstances for its author or authors. How so and how literal do you take the prognostications in Revelation? Yeah, so the book of Revelation is, of course, the last book that you read if you're reading cover to cover as a Christian. And it does tell about end times uh, with a capital E and a capital T. (laughs) And there's a lot of pyrotechnics, according to Revelation. So Revelation is a really good example of a kind of literature, so now we're doing literary criticism again, (laughs) that scholars call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is characterized by strict dualities. You find within it very clear demarcation between good and evil, between now and then, between here and there, here being earth and there being heaven, you find very clear distinctions between us and them as well. Apocalyptic literature tends to come out of times of crisis, when people feel their back is against the wall, there is no hope except by divine intervention. So the difference between here and now in apocalyptic literature is usually marked by a clear intervention by God which changes the course of everything and corrects all the gross injustices that the people responsible for the apocalyptic literature feel themselves to be subject to. And so it often comes out of times of persecution or when otherwise it seems there's no real way forward. 
So we think that the book came out of similar experiences for the early Christian community. And it tends to be very rife with symbolism, which is gobs of fun for people to interpret. And so we have had people interpret the symbolism within Revelation over the centuries since then, millennia since then, in ways that would try to make those narratives relevant for the immediate time of the person who's reading it. The symbolism itself, of course, had meaning to the original audiences specific to their circumstances. So some symbols represented uh, the Roman Empire or emperor. You have symbols representing other of the nations that the Israelites had confronted. And then you also have symbols telling the harbingers of the end times when the world would cease to exist as we know it, ushering in a new age of righteousness and vindication. Final question, Kristen. And I feel like you have kind of been giving this answer throughout our conversation when you speak the most enthusiastically about what you love about the Bible, but what do you love studying most about the Bible? Well, I just love that it won't fit into the molds we try to keep shoving it into. <laughs> and and because of that, we are the better. We have to exercise some humility. Um, we are constantly challenged to use wisdom in our engagement with it. And by wisdom, I mean the marriage of mind and heart, of of intellect and learning all the information you can gather as the best from the best most credible sources plus your innate compassion and that um, embodying that love but unpacking how best to love is where the intelligence comes in so I that's what I love about the Bible Kristen Swenson is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of several books on Christianity. Her latest is A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible. Kristen, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. I think it is a very important resource in teaching Christians and non-Christians alike how to think critically about what is arguably the world's most important chronicle. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you, Trey. You as well. Take care, Kristen. You too. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>